What are we looking for when we're looking for queer? Well, I'm looking for a greater picture of incarnation, a wider picture of incarnation. Welcome to Queering Contemplation, a podcast about the intimate and innate ways contemplation is queer. This podcast will explore the ways contemplative life hosts oddity, strangeness, eroticism, sexuality, and expressions beyond boxes and categories. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, award-winning filmmaker, podcaster, and author of the forthcoming book, Queering Contemplation, Finding Queerness in the Roots and Future of Contemplative Spirituality. Welcome to the conversation. Professor Lisa Isherwood is the first professor of feminist liberation theologies in the UK beginning in 2001. She's also served as the Vice President of the European Society of Women in Theological Research. As one of the founding editors of the Feminist Theology Journal, she's helped develop reflections of feminist theology over the past 30 years and continues to look to its future. Her work explores areas such as liberation theologies, feminist theologies, eco-theologies, psychology of religion, mysticism, queer theory, and theology. She is extensively published with over 28 books and numerous articles. Currently, she works as Professor of Practice and is a research supervisor at the University of Wales. Well, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today and to sit down and chat. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's lovely. (laughs) So one way I love to begin is asking you how you define experience and experience the word queer in your own life, your spirituality, and your work? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, as, I mean, I'm a feminist theologian, basically, a body theologian. So experience is the whole key of it. You know, feminist theology, as you know, is all about hearing one another to speech, but hearing embodied experiences to speech. So that's kind of the starting point. And in terms of how do I define queer well when you listen to people's bodily experiences and and how they are in the world in their bodies it 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 doesn't fit into patterns and it certainly doesn't fit into patterns that the churches historically would like them to fit into and then when i I thought well this is really interesting so let's have a look at this word queer so i went back to its kind of origins and how they use it in in queer theory And it's all about expanding boundaries. It's all about going over the edges. It's all about seeing things, uh, may use the phrase, not as the world sees them, which of course fits in with Christianity very well because Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. So this was kind of my starting point um, that what are we looking for? We're looking for something beyond these narrow boundaries. What, What did it mean? For me, the basic question is, what did it mean when God gave up the safety of heaven and decided to be fully incarnate, and not only in the person of Jesus, but to say, look, all of you, you too have got this as your mission. You too must be fully incarnate. Well, how can that fit into one pattern? Because the world in all its glory is so diverse, uh, you know, and, and people within it are so diverse. So what are we looking for? when we're looking for queer, well, I'm looking for uh, a greater picture of incarnation, the wider picture of incarnation, uh, in order to take that as experience 
and to reflect on Christian doctrine with it. So it's, it's very much a liberation method. Take all of that. What, what are you telling me about how it is in your body? Take that back to what Christianity has traditionally said, doctrines, ethics, and so on, and see if it works. See if Christian theology and ethics any longer hold up next to incarnate experience. Now, I'm not saying by that that everybody has achieved that level of incarnation that we're told Jesus achieved. But it is certainly, I believe, what is given to us at baptism. We are required to do that. It's not that we're somehow expected to be um, some different form of being that Jesus was. He has said, you know, we can do greater things than he did. We must be his friends, not we must be his subordinates. And so queering for me comes into that as a great adventure about if the boundaries are off, if there's no place you go and then you're suddenly full of self-condemnation because this is sin. <laughs> if instead you see it as, right, this is an exploration of what incarnation might mean, uh, then it's a very exciting adventure. To me, it's about the looking and experiencing and trying to understand the incarnate nature of everything, actually, not just baptised Christians. Although I think as baptised Christians, that is a call for us to become more incarnate. But, you know, how is the world incarnate? How are animals incarnate? How, what, what do we see going on that is something about that enfleshed? I mean, even trees are enfleshed. Something about that enfleshed nature of God that is there for us to see, observe, learn from, celebrate. I love the way that you're speaking into this notion of, of queering things and queering the way we look at scripture, queering the way we look at theology, queering the way we even look at our own lives. Yeah, you're saying, you're saying not only this way of better understanding what it means to be incarnate, but also this, this understanding that this is for all people. I think so many people fear the word queer or queering because they directly relate it only to the sexual or only to the gender identity or only to in the LGBTQIA community, but ultimately queering is for everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's this thing of in the world, not of the world. It's about going through. I mean, I think John Kasama said it once the way I love. She said, Jesus kicked a hole in reality and asked everybody else to make it bigger. And I think that's what, that's what queering does. It, it, kicks that hole wider it says all these restrictions are not health giving they're not not divinely inspired and I mean when you think about it perhaps I should have said that the incarnation itself is an incredibly queer move on behalf of whatever the divine is you know because what happens there this our notions of divine which is above beyond not touched by suddenly becomes a baby in a manger vulnerable uh, and I don't want to play up that vulnerable part because I know the church does, but becomes fully enfleshed. You know, uh, it could be a little more graphic about that, but I think you know what I mean. A fully enfleshed baby, and all that that involves. That's a very queer move on behalf of whatever the divine might be. And I think it's Graham Ward who points out that the whole of the life of Jesus, as we have in the gospel, is full of queer moves. 
absolutely full of queer moves, perhaps the, the gospel tells us, and whether, you know, how literally we take this, it doesn't matter, but tells us that this fully incarnate person then becomes present in bread and wine. Um, how does that happen? You know, having been possibly ascended and killed and get all this stuff that happens in the story, but then you're told this fully in flesh person is still somehow present. Uh, I personally don't find that hard to believe, but, you know, in the sense that uh, people I've loved and lost are present, and I would say sometimes in almost a physical sense. To me, it's interesting. It queers the whole of what we think reality is. It, it really does. And, and for me, when it gets just tied down in one person 2,000 years ago, it, it somehow reduces the wonderfulness of the story, the freeingness, the revolution. I mean, it was a revolution, but not because this person has come to tell us who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, but because there's a fundamental come on, get off your backside and queer what you're told is your reality in the time that you live. Yeah, yeah. You've also done a lot of work in body theology. And I'm wondering if you could share more of how how these things all intersect. I, I'm struck by how my own experience of queerness is an embodied experience. And when I queer things by just even my presence in a space or by, you know, kind of looking at things with with oddity or with my head tilted, so to speak, I find also my body is so involved. And so I'm wondering if you could talk maybe about the intersection of this, this embodiment you continue to speak to and this body theology and also this queer theology. Yeah, well, it all kind of uh, kicked off many, many years ago when I realized that when uh, in, in the British situation, when women, oh, 100 years ago, perhaps not quite 100, were asking for uh, contraceptive rights, it became a matter for the House of Lords. All these lords stood up and said, no, the empire will fall. And I thought, how, how will the empire fall if women get some control over their own bodies? And then I started to realise that, of course, so much depends on how we say who can be, what they can be in their, in their body. So that's where the body theology started for me. And again, it's the feminist thing. It's about experience. Who are you in your body? What do you experience in your body? And exactly as you're saying, put certain bodies in a room. I mean, mine is a very large body. It always has been. <laughs> Believe you me, I put that body in a room and you just look at the reactions, especially when my mouth opens. It's really interesting how bodies actually affect the space you're in and certainly how queer bodies affect the space you're in, which is why I have some sympathy with a, a queer group who are saying, isn't it lovely? All these straight gay and lesbian people can go into churches and they're asking for straight marriage. What about the queers? <laughs> what about us who are on the edge who don't fit? Can I go into church? I think um, I talked to a chap years ago, you know, can I go into church with my boyfriend on a leash? You know, uh, would that be okay? And I think, well, it depends on the church, but can I go in as I am or do I have to play some sort of straight role? Uh, and I think all of that comes into it, totally comes into it. How your body is and the impact it has on the environment you're in. And what does that make you want to do? Does that make you want to hide? Or does that make you want to say, well, I'm sorry, live with it. Here, I, You know, this is me. Here I am. 
And I, I've just finished reading a lot of accounts that really make me sad about how younger queer people are just saying hiding is the only option, really. Perhaps not in the secular world in the UK at this time, but certainly in the churches. And of course, Justin Welby didn't make it any better at the Lambeth Conference when he just restated the situation that gay sex is a sin. How, how can that make anybody feel safe? How can that speak to anybody's experience? I think without that rhetoric in people's head, that isn't their experience. Ask them what their experience is. It, does this feel awful and terrible for you if this is with somebody you love and trust? No, it doesn't. So how is that a sin then? How is that a sin? And so this, this mismatch uh, is, you know, I mean, it broke my heart reading these stories. And of course, I suppose it's the same in the States, but over here, the suicide rate of, uh, of young people is just huge. And it's higher, particularly for trans teenagers, but I mean, it's very, very high for LGBTQI, QI, isn't it, the other way around, people. So, I mean, it, it's, it's tragic. It's blasphemous, actually. It's blasphemous. It's a sin against whatever we consider the divine to be, because these young people are carriers of that if they're given the environment in which to love it and embrace it and lead fully queer lives that are challenging everything. Um, it's, you know what the church needs, I think, or the church is. It's not just the Anglican church that I was reading about. Yeah. Yeah, and I've noticed in your work, you continue to, um, or I experience your work as a, as a call to queering both spaces and places where this old story exists and is stagnant and is stale and won't move. Um, specifically, I'm thinking about your work titled Christianity, Queer Past, Queer Futures. And in that you write, texts may be queered when we move beyond the expected and predicted readings laid down by church tradition. So in that way, you know, back to this talking about the way we can, can queer spaces, you know, regardless of being LGBTQIA plus or, or otherwise, the way that we can also do that with the scriptures, with the text, and what I hear in your work, what I feel in your work is that um, not only does the world and Christianity need that, but it demands that to feel the full incarnation in each other and in the scripture. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I always get so upset about is that, you know, even the person Jesus himself didn't say it ended with him. He didn't say this is the end, you know, and, and certainly... Mark's gospel, which we told us first and didn't actually have a resurrection story to begin with, is a world in chaos. And it's saying, over to you, what are you going to do? So Jesus never said it ended with him. So if we just stop everything there and say, well, we've got this, we think that this was his life and we'll interpret everything through this, I think we're doing a great disservice to what was a, I, I still believe, a revolutionary story, a story, not, not the only one. There are others in the world too, but for us in, in, within Christianity, a revolutionary story. And I mean, some of this wonderful biblical scholarship, I'm not a biblical scholar, but that has come out, I mean, is just, it's just fabulous. It's just fabulous that how texts are read. That I, I think, is it Jeremiah? 
But Ken Stone says, well, he was definitely a bottom, but he was a sassy bottom because he was giving God hell. And you think, well, yes, you know, this is, of course, of course. How are we, how are we to read this? Why are we told we have to read it coming with a certain set of ideas in mind? We're not told to read any other literature like that. We're told to come with an open mind, bring our experience to the text. What's it saying? Uh, and I mean, womanist uh, biblical scholarship has done fabulous work on that uh, in terms of the in, innate racism in the texts and the in, innate racism in, well, if Jesus ever did, but, you know, and, and all of that. I mean, it's fantastic. Why should it be any different for queer folk? Why do you say, well, yes, that's okay. That's, that's really good if womanists do this, because, you know, we all know there's been a, a terrible history. There's been a terrible history too for, for queer folk. Why should we not bring our eyes to the text too and say, it's different for us. We read it differently. Uh, if it's to be our life story, then, you know, there are different ways to look at these things. I love the idea that the, the coat of many colours was in fact a princess dress and the poor, poor devil got chucked down a well for, for a princess. Apparently, uh, I forget who told me, but it was a Hebrew scholar who said that's the Hebrew princess dress. And you think, all right, it's different. The story is now different. Why not? Are these texts not for everybody? Are they not texts that help us as all good mythology? And I use that word advisedly help us to reflect on our lives and the world we live in and to get a better understanding and to get a grip of how we should move forward. Because surely it is all about moving forward, not about being stuck 2,000 years ago. And even then, I mean, uh, that makes me laugh. You know, the church has never changed. Really? Okay. The reading of the Bible has never changed. Really? <laughs> Did you ever do a church history course? A basic biblical? <laughs> of course, it changes. So why can it not change in the, in the hand of people who are saying these have been clobber texts and they continue to be clobber texts and we don't like it. We don't, you know, there are two choices, walk away or engage. And enough people still want to engage. Uh, and I, yeah, I think it's exciting. It's an adventure. It may. Uh, and again, you know, queer is not just for uh, a certain group of people. It's for everybody. Why can everybody not read these texts through their own eyes and say what it's saying to them? Why not? Not just the traditional white men who've done it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that reminds me of uh, another one of your, your essays, Queering Christ. You write, the queer Christian body is a transgressive signifier of radical equality. This body lives in the world, but is not chained by its narrow definitions and hierarchical power systems. Along with that, do you think that the queer Christian body lives in kind of... Um, Gosh, like this invitational liminal space or prophetic space? Yes, but with feet planted in the ground, some people have done that you get into this spiritual space and suddenly it's all some other place. Um, and it, and it, it has to be feet on the ground because this is where people are suffering. So it absolutely has to be feet on the ground. But it's certainly in some other space where people will look at the world and how it is and go, are you kidding? How, 
how? How did you get this? You know, a range of things, because with a sort of queer eye on it all, which is about transgression, is about equality, I think, as well, because you're saying, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all as queer as each other. It's, it's, it's kind of, we're all, we all have a right to our embodied experience. And you look at, well, just what's going on in the world. You just look at stuff and you go, you, you, you're kidding, are you? There is another, there's got to be another way. This is not the answer uh, to everything. And that's what I think a queer Christic eye does, you know, because if we take just basic things, as Rosemary Ruther did take, that, you know, somehow this person of Jesus was, it was in a liberative tradition and was saying it, it's this freer life, this more life in abundance that we want. So then... A, a queer Christ is somebody who's saying, yes, and let's expand that. Let's see what that could be. Uh, let's transgress in order to uh, to see beyond the walls and to see beyond the boundaries uh, to some wider space, bigger space, that is more equal, freer, more life-giving. I know these are very nebulous words in a sense. And, you know, oh, yes, here we go. This is the... <laughs> This is the theological jargon, <laughs> but, but I mean, it does have very concrete things behind it. It talks about equality. It talks nobody starves, nobody is abused, you know, very concrete. Um, the, the world itself is not abused. They're, you know, very, very concrete things by seeing beyond, just by, see, by seeing it beyond differently sideways upside down I don't know I mean I, I I think that paper years ago about the mirror image was also quite uh, influential that just see it turn it round see it differently how does it look now I, I do think this is what any kind of queer Christology has to do it has to say my body carries something of the Christ nature in it um, with the hope of developing more of that. But in order for that to happen, I have to be free. I have to not feel persecuted and oppressed. I have to be, you know, I have to have the space to do that. So please allow it. And not just me as an individual, but, you know, groups of people must have it. Absolutely. You know, before we, before we began recording, we started talking about the, queer, the the innate queerness of things like mysticism and eroticism in mysticism. And I'd love to talk more about that. But first, kind of as a, as a prelude into that, I'm wondering if you might speak to your thoughts on what it would mean or look like to queer contemplative life in Christianity and queering um, kind of that the contemplative practices of Christianity and those kinds of things. I think it always has been queer in a way totally queer but I'll tell you what summed it up for me we had a feminist theology years ago now feminist theology meeting that involved witches and nuns which was quite interesting and this wonderful witch a friend of mine walked in and she said to the nun I don't know what you were doing before this but I was having sex what were you doing <laughs> she said to prepare myself that's what I was doing. <laughs> and, and the, the nun bless her heart said well, I would have done if there was anybody around I fancy, but actually, no, I was praying. <laughs> kind of, and in a sense, that kind of 
you know, for me, that really struck me as these are two different paths leading to the same thing, but they haven't been different paths. And certainly part of, you know, I was talking to you about Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie Kemp is, is having a lot of sex with people because she isn't faithful to her husband. So she's having a lot of sex with people. But in her effective piety, which, as you know, is about you imagine scenarios, uh, she's having sex with God and with Jesus and with Mary. Uh, uh, she's she, This is what she does because this is her way of communicating. Now, this has made other mystics in the early 1920s say she cannot be a mystic. This is awful. Now, how can she be a mystic? This terrible thing. Uh, but it it really, I mean, it really makes her part of what it is she's trying to understand. And when you can talk quite freely to to people about this subject. And I find sometimes they talk more freely to me than I'd like them to. But anyway, <laughs> they do. And it's interesting because the number of Catholic priests who have said to me, well, the whole celebration of the Eucharist, you know, I, I get turned on, I have erections, I'm glad I've got robes on. <laughs> you think, really, when you you're doing this thing oh yes and then other people who said but you know it's all very erotic spirituality is very erotic it is embodiment and why wouldn't it be why wouldn't it actually connect with a very very fundamental part of who we are which actually is about reaching out and connecting and we've made it such a narrow discourse about oh you know it's all sort of nasty and selfish no it doesn't have to be it's about connection reaching out to the whole of the world really you know this is about who we are you know we are fundamentally sensual people and how the world again it's quite interesting has encouraged us to understand eroticism is anything but i mean i agree with beverly harrison from years ago that it's pornographic most of it it's not erotic how we are encouraged to understand our bodies. Pornographic, not in the sense of what's explicit and not, but in the use of people in it. Um, and I think we, we just, I think mysticism would be one way back to showing us what a true eroticism could be or should be, because it is about passion and it is about connection. Yeah, along along those lines, you had mentioned Marjorie Kemp. I'm wondering if there's any other uh, mystics or contemplatives, past or present, that you kind of sense embody this this queerness and this um, help in allowing us to to see the fuller picture of the incarnate. Well, it depends who who you think is what the definition of a mystic is, but I think there's certainly a couple of contemporary um, feminist theologians who I would put into the category of mystic, but to save their blushes, I won't name them. And they're very embodied people. I mean, they're very embodied people who would say, my mysticism, my connection. There would be a lot of eco uh, theologians, feminist and otherwise, who would talk about a very sensuous connection with nature that is, I think, quite mystical in the sense that they're, they're 
not looking at it for the sake of their spiritual life. I mean, I always get annoyed with some of the, oh, you know, we look at this mountain, then we have this vision. No, 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 no. The mountain is not there for you to have a vision. <laughs> the mountain is there to be a, a mountain and for you to connect with. <laughs> connect with it. See what it has to tell you by connecting with it. Um, and I, I think there are lots of people like that around and about talking about, you know, how a real connection by looking, feeling, touching, tasting nature. Oh, I mean, I think old Hildegard had something going for her, but I didn't like the Crusades bit. And I, and I think she was a bit nasty to that woman she fell in love with. So I, you know, but does it all have to be nice? I don't, I don't know. Does it all have to be perfect? Probably not. But I would say within the mystic tradition, there are many people uh, who are querying what we understand and who, how, how could you, how could you live that life actually, if there wasn't, if there wasn't something in it that connected with the very rawness of your own being. And that for me is what we might call this erotic part of you. Uh, it, it has to connect with that or you couldn't, I think you couldn't sort of live that life. I always think that about Julian of Norwich, you know, walled up in a church. How could she do that without going mad unless there was some connection she could make with something deeper and kind of satisfying? I, mean, I don't think it's a good model for us all walled up in a church. Um, but um, yeah, because I don't think that was a, a cutting off. I think that was a connecting more. And interestingly, Marjorie used to go and visit her uh, and, and she used to get very fed up and ask her to leave. <laughs> used to say, I, I, and if she could have hidden sometimes in the corners of her cell, I think she would have done it. It's like, Marjorie, please go away. This is too much. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, and interestingly, in some of Marjorie's visions, the Virgin Mary used to say to her, Marjorie, enough already, please go away. I can't, I can't stand it. So, I mean, this is, this is to me fascinating how you get these visions that are fully embodied and you get the high and the low, you know, you get the sex with God and you get that, look, could just stop, it's enough, go away. <laughs> so mysticism is fantastic. I mean, I, um, I think Bernard, Bernard of Clairvaux, as we mentioned, I mean, there's something fundamentally queer there, I think, or perhaps it's just gay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> perhaps he was just gay and not actually queer. Uh, but I think some of his writings were were more on the queer um, spectrum um, because I think it's important to make this distinction because not everybody who wants to embrace a queer life has to be, you know, gay really. So I, I think it's important to to make those distinctions when we're when we're looking at our history. But I mean, there are plenty. plenty. Catherine of Siena, Richard Rambus says Catherine of Siena was definitely queer you know, in the sense that above and beyond and visions above and beyond and outside and understandings. Absolutely. Uh, I think I have a couple more questions. And one is, what is something in Christianity that comes to mind that you find is in deep need of being queered? Whether that's a particular biblical story or, uh, I know you mentioned earlier, really the deep need of our churches to wake up and and be queered but I'm wondering if there's anything else well it's kind of the whole structure isn't it really of most of the churches 
that this hierarchical let's pretend sort of approach I think isn't particularly healthy I, I, I really don't think it's healthy I think the hierarchy of it makes all sorts of people repress all kinds of things as they wish to to go up the the hierarchy so I would ask for that to change a bit and to to look at itself and to see how else it might be beyond the boundaries of what is because I don't think as far as I know Jesus ever ordained anybody let alone made a church structure so you know so that's interesting but for me it all comes down to this nature of incarnation how are we seeing the person of Christ because that is the center isn't it of Christianity really and for me that work needs to be continued how might that look how do we how do we queer it lived experience talking to it what other experiences can be incorporated to make it a bigger vision and for me that would be the one thing I would implore people add your experience into what it might mean to be incarnate and to be what became called the Christ but to be the incarnate God what is your experience going to add to that how is it going to help? How is it going to make a more expensive world rather than, and, and certainly by definition, then a more expensive church? Hopefully it would do away with all these games that people play. I mean, I, I was a little impolite about the Anglican church, which I, I don't feel badly about, but I just felt that in this Lambeth conference, I mean, they're all terribly polite to each other. And I just feel that their gay sex is wrong was a way of being polite to those churches that still wanted to remain included. Yes, well, you know, we don't want to offend you. So, uh, of course, we'll say this because it, it isn't, I know, what the vast majority of Anglican bishops and clergy feel. So, it, again, it's, you know, the Anglican church is all inclusive. It's a very polite, you know, English gentleman's club is how it started. And so <laughs> everybody's decent. And, and it just seemed look what's been sacrificed to that. I mean, the lives of people, actually, because if the Anglican churches in countries where it's a, a death sentence, if you're gay, are not standing up because they too think that gay sex is a sin, then this is it's just appalling. This is beyond words. So I would say keep queering that Christ and keep getting a bit of, you know, to hell with the politeness. What is what is the radical justice here? What is what can be done to engage with people's lives? Easy to call people sinners, not so easy to hear what they have to say and to include them in an ever increasing um, Christological story. Yeah, and that kind of silencing is is or that kind of uh, politeness is a form of silencing, right? And a form of like you're saying, continuing to limit the view of the incarnate and that politeness is is itself a form of an injustice towards the the whole picture of the body mm, yes you know we'd be we'd be terribly polite we won't <laughs> we won't ask the difficult questions we won't say the difficult things and more than that we won't hear the difficult things well i think you know that becomes important that that these people who are saying they are church and therefore they are representatives although of course most of them believe only of Jesus the Christ not of a wider body of that but they don't listen well 
they don't listen well. I mean, I remember talking to a bishop who was at the Lambeth Conference when this first gay sex is sin was passed. And I said, how did that happen? Because I know that you, for one, don't think that. And he said, oh, yes, I wasn't alone in not thinking that, but it was awfully hot in that hall and we just wanted to get out. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, oh, you know, it won't affect people's lives. I mean, have they come to the point where they believe that the churches are so ineffectual that they're not going to have any effect on people's lives? So it doesn't matter what they say. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But that horrified me. That horrified me. No, that's, yeah, absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Well, one other question I'd love to ask uh, before we close up today is out of curiosity, is there anything you're currently working on that you want to share about? Or if someone was new to your work, where would you suggest they begin? Oh, I say it depends what they want. <laughs> it really depends what they want. I mean, if they're just simply interested in the in the feminist side of things, well, then any of those early books, Liberating Christ, all of these things, early books about feminist approaches too. But if they're interested in, in, in queer stuff, well, then I suppose start with some of the papers. But also what I'm working on, because as that paper you mentioned that was... Um, Queer past, queer, queer future. If you read that particular um, manifestation of it, I make connections with uh, the new cosmology and theology, and I'm working on that too. That how you know the, the cosmos, the beauty, creativity in that comes from transgression. Every move in the cosmos is a transgression, and so I'm trying to make connections between queer theory, queer theology, and this whole cosmic stuff so that's kind of going on in the background and then there have been lots of papers I've been asked to write about the queer Christ and uh, and there's uh, there's one that's just going to come out which is it's going to come out in French it's called who did they say I am and the answer is queer my dear queer so that's, that's the French translation which will be uh, uh, I was fascinated by that I had to laugh yeah, so I'm still working on that, and Marjorie has taken a bit of my attention. So it was always my intention to write a book about Marjorie, but I don't know, maybe just a few articles from a purely queer perspective um, will be enough. So working on lots of lots of different things, but all with the same embodiment experience. What does it say? You know, this term queer encompasses it all. It's not a narrow definition. Um, and I don't want to say that in order to take it away from queer people who would completely identify as queer people, not at all. Um, but to say it doesn't have to be a scary word for people. It can be something that everybody can understand, that they could understand their own lives when they're questioning and moving beyond and doing differently, that that's a form of queering. Because I do think that that's been part of the problem. There's been fear. What does it mean? Um, and I don't know how we overcome that. But as I say, I wouldn't want to devalue in any way at all the experience um, of the queer community, not at all. Absolutely. I look forward to all of that and continuing to to dig into your work. And thank you so much for yeah your presence, your work in this world, and the ways that you are calling us all to 
look at things differently and look at things in a way that we can see more of God. So thank you for your work. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. You can also learn more about me and my work at CassidyHall.com. This podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Into the Deep by Danielle Musto. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. You can find out more at ChristianCentury.org. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources and tools, head over to Enfleshed.com.